trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Trauma Code, this is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio uh, for Monday, July 17th with my lovely co-host. Dr. Cassandra Raphael, happy Monday everybody. And I'm very, very happy to introduce our live in studio guest, Alain Martin, or Alan Martin, <laughs> a uh, documentary filmmaker and proud Haitian who uh, whose film titled The Forgotten Occupation, Jim Crow Goes to Haiti, premiered at the Art of Brooklyn, Fil- Art of Brooklyn Film Festival. Uh, last month in June 2023 and the film also won the awards for the audience choice and also the award for outstanding feature documentary so welcome Alain thank you for having me Dr. Simon Dr. Raphael it's a pleasure to be here it's a pleasure to have you here welcome welcome so um, we're going to hear much more from uh, Alan Martin and also about Alan Martin uh, in just a minute but I want to say a few words about the song that we used to intro the episode today that song was called La Patrie en Danger by Haitian music artist or world music artist Meiji off of his latest record, 48 Rebecca or 48 Rebecca. It's a street address in Haiti. Uh, and that title, La Patrie en Danger, translates to The Homeland is in Danger in Haitian Creole. Um, I, I spoke to Meiji last week for the first time in, in many years, and I told him that I plan to play this song on the radio for today's episode where we'll be talking about Haitian history a little bit, Haitian uh, current events. And um, Meiji's released such beautiful music featuring various genres of Haitian music. And he, he hasn't really said much about it. He hasn't really announced the record very much. He just kind of put it out there and is receiving the feedback, which is pretty overwhelmingly positive for the music. Um, he, he explained that he, that's on purpose. That's an intentional silence. He kind of wants people to be a little bit more mindful of their human relationships and not focus so much on, on what's on the internet, but rather to kind of engage in those relationships as a part of healing for Haiti, um, for the future of the country, and, and to do something about its course. So he's, he's really releasing music to galvanize uh, the youth here, although the music speaks to people, I think, of all ages. Um, and, and he's not the only one with, with that on his mind because on July 7th, 2021, that was like the, the second anniversary of the assassination of the, the former Haitian president, Jovenel Moïse. Um, you know, arrests have been made in this, people are charged, but nobody's really been convicted of anything here yet. Um, and also on July 9th, Haitians across the United States, Canada, and France marched in what they call Soufpoaiti, uh, basically means relief for, ha- relief for Haiti, and that was organized by a pastor in North Miami called Grigoui Toussaint. Um, in an effort to bring awareness to, you know, escalating gang violence um, and kidnappings that have been taking place in Haiti for quite some time now. Um, and the goal of Relief for Haiti was to kind of mobilize compassionate individuals, as, as he says, as 
Pastor Gugu Toussaint says is to mobilize compassionate individuals in the United States and overseas to advocate for legislation that can bring relief to the Haitian people, both in the homeland and also abroad. So Haiti's been on my mind a lot recently, and I think many Haitians, Haitian Americans, were all kind of concerned and wanted to see the country take a different course. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the history as we consider how to move forward in Haiti. Welcome back to the Trauma Code. And uh, I, I, there's, uh, it seems like a lot of things are coming together right now. Um, it was very cool to to hear that new music from Medzi, um, which perhaps people who aren't you know uh, either Haitian or Haitian adjacent maybe haven't heard a whole lot, but it's really an excellent record and happens to be kind of a family friend. Um, at the same time, Bio is coming up next weekend in New York City. If people uh, aren't familiar with that, is is probably one of the best cultural kind of movements or moments. Uh, in the city, uh, a celebration of Haitian music and culture, which we can talk a little bit more about at the end. That's in Central Park, um, and uh, we saw uh, uh, this. Uh, the film we're going to talk about today. I, I, I'm used to calling you Alain Martin, and yeah, just try, <laughs> trying trying to name Alain Martin. <laughs> Alain Martin, wow. um, but it reads as Alan Martin. Um, uh, the the film The Forgotten Occupation and you know I'm someone who grew up at least since about high school reading about American occupations the work of the CIA and the Marines you know the history and you know right you know you can go from the present day backwards you know Iraq Vietnam Panama yeah. uh, Guatemala Dominican Republic and I was yeah. vaguely aware of the of the um, American occupation um, in Haiti but uh, and so I walked into your to your film thinking I knew something um, but uh, <laughs> I and, get that a lot <laughs> and, <laughs> but I, I think there was kind of two um, angles that I really appreciated your film one was the historical angle right. um, which was very rich um, and you know humbled me a little bit in, in what I didn't know in my own ignorance um, and there was also a personal uh, a connection which you know I, I guess is sort of the way a lot of documentaries are right now but being again kind of um adjacent to a haitian family or part of a haitian family now understanding welcome to the club thank you <laughs> your, your your um you know your family experience and of of kind of this ongoing tragedy and what it means to you um and we can talk a little bit more about that but i thought it was very rich you know kind of cinematographically and narratively and thank all you man that. i appreciate that <laughs> um but first you know, if all of our audience, uh, if they we're all probably as smart as, as I thought I was, but also probably as ignorant as I was about the Haitian occupation, um, or rather the, the American occupation of Haiti. Can, can you give us just a little bit, frame this historical moment that you describe in your film? Yeah, well, you know, the occupation happened over a century ago. I, this July 28th come in, it's going to be what? Is my math good? 108th? anniversary of that occupation and listen Dr. Simon you don't need to feel bad before coming into this occupation story myself I thought I knew all there was to know about Haiti right and in doing my research I was also shocked and humbled by the things I learned so you know I've just felt like this is a story that needs to be told that needs to be shared that people need to be aware of it you know I felt like this is something at least I owe to my country to get it out there. Amazing, amazing. And I think okay. in the, not I think, for, for fact, in the film, we see you kind of really in the trenches. You're in like the national libraries, yeah. the, you know, the U.S. National Libraries of Congress, yeah. um, trying to really get the information from, you know, certainly at least the American perspective, which is like what they thought they were doing right. and and what their intentions were on paper yeah. versus what we actually got in having, you know, and being a Haitian or somebody of Haitian descent, you know what the legacy is. You know what yeah. I mean? Where where it might be long forgotten America, you know, as Simon has pointed out, has a long history of intervening in this country and that country, but the people who remember it the best are the ones who kind of live in the aftermath, the ones who kind of, yes. you know, kind of hand down the story. Yes. And that's a lot of what you're doing uh, in the film through your conversation, your written letter to to your grandfather, kind of contrasting what you have learned as a result of doing, like digging for that history, yeah. comparing it to what he has historically led you to think is right, right or what, what is or is not, right? Yeah, yeah. you got it. So uh, let, let's, uh, there's a couple of ways to go at it. Let's, I'm going to try to come at it from the historical. Let's get us to that moment of, when did you say, 1915? 19, July 28, 1915, of, yeah. of the occupation, right? So we know that 
Um, Haiti and, and its modern kind of founding <clears throat> was a colony of the French, really brutal um, kind of sugar plantation uh, economy. Um, and there was a series of slave revolts, right? And yep. including people who were born in Africa. It was it was that close enough to the slave trade. Yeah. Um, and you know we we know some of the uh, sort of the heroes or the legends of that era, yeah. um, uh, and they achieved uh, throughout the the French, um, and this all happened kind of echoes with the French Revolution going on at the same yeah. time, and yeah. an attempt to even be present as at times as part of the of you know France and the French Revolution, but then that counter revolution, including invasions from Napoleon, yeah. attempting to retake the island unsuccessfully, yeah. right? And, and there's a lot of history. Um, and there's, uh, you know, there's a division. If, correct me if I'm wrong. That kind of goes back to the revolution of, of, and and its aftermath of sort of an educated kind of urban elite, and then a, right. and then a peasantry just trying to make it um, in, yeah. in the rural areas of Haiti. And what immediate, and I'm skipping a lot of history, right? But and you can let me know if there's something really important that needs to be taken into account. But that is kind of the history that proceeds. But but the, the nation maintains independence. Absolutely. And then in 1915, there is uh, repression by the president, whose name I, I don't recall. Villebois Guillaume Sam. Uh, repression. You know, Haitians with these long names, man. <laughs> you know, Jean Villebois Guillaume Sam. Uh, who's who executes a lot a lot of people and the, and the the um, yeah 162 prisoners. And and, and that uh, precipitates a crisis that that ends with or that causes his own death. Right, he's murdered yeah, by the mob. Yeah, Shakespearean tragedy, man. And so, if I may add to it, Villebois Guillaume Sam was about the seventh president in Haiti in about a three or four year period. Now he's cognizant of the fact that all his predecessors had been overthrown, right? So he's like, I need me an insurance policy. So he arrests 162 prisoners, not his direct political opponents, but the family members hmm. of his political opponents to sort of like dampen whatever ambitions they might have had politically. But the whole thing sort of back, backfires because what happens is in 1914, the Wilson administration sends a commissioner to Haiti by the name of Paul Fuller to sort of negotiate with Wilbur Guillaume Sam about a possible takeover of Haiti. And Wilbur Guillaume Sam is like, nah, you guys are not going to take over my country, right? But guess what? His enemies saw this meeting as his, as him opening himself to the U.S., which was completely not true. So they launched this revolt to take him out. It's successful. So as a parting shot, not him per se, but one of his generals, Charles Oscar Etienne, orders the assassination of the 162 prisoners in that Port-au-Prince prison, right? And the population got pretty irate, you know, because... One of the victims was like a child who was nine years old, right? And um, another set of victims were three brothers, uh, Le Frere Polinis, the brothers Polinis. And they were all assassinated in the prison. I think the oldest was 15. So, you know, obviously um, the population gets irate and they broke into the French embassy where he went into hiding. And, you know, it's a very brutal and gruesome scene, right? And the picture is in a documentary. So Admiral Caperton, who had been <clears throat> on the USS Washington on Haitian waters since 1914, by the way, hmm. right? According to him, I don't, that sounds too cinematic. I don't know if I believe him, but according to him, he was he had on his binoculars from his, <laughs> from his ship. Then he saw Sam's body being dragged in the streets of Port Prince. I don't know if I believe that, but that's what led the American occupation, right? They're like, listen, these Asians are savages. They obviously cannot rule themselves. We have to go out and sort of, you know, give them a guiding hand. So this is just to say, too, that they've been trying to get into Haiti maybe since 1908, but the opportunity never presented itself because Haiti was the only country in all of Latin America to have not defaulted on its debt, on its foreign debt. Mexico did, right? Colombia did, Brazil did. So that invited foreign intervention, right? But Haiti is very pride, prideful and conscious of the meaning of its independence. So 
they always made sure they paid their debt on time as not to invite any foreign intervention. And, so, uh, and a lot of that debt even was odious, right, um, of the French imposing it correct. As, as, a, as a consequence of being thrown out uh, yeah. of the country. Yeah, so in, as you got, you know, in 1825, Hades put into this position to pay a debt to the slave masters it defeated, right? And it's essentially like a kind of reparations even. It's just right. Like, we lost this colony, so we're going to lose money. So pay us the money that we presume Correct. Lose. Correct. Right? Yeah, so to pay the French government, they had to borrow money from French bankers. Right? So they still left the French bankers in charge of the Haitian economy. Mm. So by the late 1800s, the United States is becoming the superpower. And they're getting a little tense about France and England and Germany having so much influence in their backyard, if you want to call it that. So they started looking, so what they started doing first and foremost, they started buying up all those debt from Europe, right? And then, you no, know, and then eventually, you know, with World War I, with France being distracted, you know, this was like the perfect opening for the U.S. to just go in and complete this takeover without too much French opposition. And, and that's a lot of history that you just gave us. And, and, you know, you told us at the premiere that you've been working on this film for over a decade, right? Yeah, man. But um, there was there's something of an echo in this moment in Haitian history in that, right, we're in a period where there's been, in very few years, turnover of multiple governments right. uh, uh, and, and a lack of kind of a crisis of legitimacy. And then the president, uh, Jovenel Moïse, two right. years ago, is murdered. And sort of the, the actors that carried that out, it's very confusing, and, and the yeah. official story doesn't really make sense. Not at all. So uh, it just feels like an echo of that moment of chaos. Um, I agree. And, and that, same, that assassination also happens in July, right? The, the death of Jovenel Moise. Mm -hmm. Sam happened in July as well, so yeah. So what I, you know, you can't plan these things out. The, the, what I didn't even appreciate until I finished watching the movie, and, and you, you reflect this very effectively in the, in the film, is that this question of what are the consequences of foreign occupation in Haiti uh, is, is, is really a powerful question in this moment. Yes. Um, so I think that you know, we, we've, I think, framed well the history leading up to the occupation. So let's answer that question, at least in you know, the beginning of the 20th century. What right. did American occupation of Haiti look like? Uh, to quote or paraphrase, you know, my good friend Patrick Sylvain, who's in the film, the occupation was an extension of the Jim Crow South. Uh, even though I wouldn't use the word Jim Crow South, I think Jim Crow was national, even in the North, right? But it was an extension of Jim Crow, right? And, and when you read some personal letters from the Haitians at the time, it was a very shocking thing. It's hard to appreciate it now, but again, in 1915, Haiti is one of three black nations that are free. It's Haiti, it's Ethiopia, and it's Liberia. But, you know, Ethiopia and Liberia are all the way on the other side of the world. Haiti is right here in the Americas. And Haitians are quite aware of this. So their nationality, you know, their identity was rooted in this act of independence. And to see foreigners come into the country, right, and telling them that they are no longer in charge, right? Again, when you read personal letters, from certain people like Pauli Sanon, you know, it was a very shocking thing, right? And in my film, I mentioned this gentleman, Edmond Lafourette, who committed suicide, right? He tied two dictionaries around his neck and jumped into a river. That's how shocking it was for them. And, you know, there was a lot of um, just gratuitous violence, especially against the people on the countryside, right? I'll give an anecdote, because I think anecdotes capture the natures of these things, right? There was an American surgeon by the name of Williams. He went to a market to order something from a woman, something to eat. And he felt that what he was being charged was super expensive, right? He pulled out his pistol and just shot the woman in the middle of the market and walked away. Nothing happened to him, right? Another anecdote was uh, there was another Marine, and I, I wish I could remember his name, but he was electrifying Haitians for fun and then laughing about it, 
right? Like the New York Times has an article about it from the time because he got caught martialed, but he was found not guilty, right? Um, yeah, you know, there was burning people alive. There was the um, burning people alive, right? That's what the occupation looked like. And, you know, it was also a loss of sovereignty, right? Like I said before, like you were no longer in charge of your country, right? So. I think when I was, well, I, I distinctly remember this feeling actually of, of watching the film and seeing the images of what the Americans who had kind of settled in Haiti, like how they appeared to be living and they right. lived in these big, beautiful colonial houses yeah. and they had... Uh, I guess what we call personnel. Yeah, they have, uh, maids. Maids. The bon, the garçon, la cour, as they call them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dressed in like, you know, white tuxes and yeah. you know, very fancy. And so yeah. it, it almost did look to me like since enslavement had, you know, quote unquote, ended in the United States, mm -hmm. that they were able to kind of do it somewhere else. Correct. That's kind yeah. of what it looked yeah. like, you know. Yeah. And that was the imagery and, and really beautiful houses yeah. and lots of Americans looking real happy, Very happy. you know, well served, yeah. well attended to. Yeah. And it's just like, ah, so this is where you're coming to do the things that, right, you, know, you can't do in the apparently US. Apparently you cannot do anyway on paper. You can't do anymore in the United States. Right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And again, if those of us who are familiar with the history post, you know, post slavery, we can pick up this nostalgia, this war nostalgia of having things go back to the to the olden days, right? I right. guess making America great again. <laughs> right. You know, and so when they get to Haiti, you're dealing with a people, you know, who don't speak any English. They live in the countryside. They are connected from the remainder of the country. I mean, meaning Port-au-Prince, right? We don't have like an NAACP, right? You don't, you don't have any of that. So the Marines are able to then satisfy this nostalgia, you know, this fantasy of having slavery, mm -hmm. you know, of you know them being slave masters and having you know black people be their subjects, right? You know, yeah. And I think that that's another one. Is you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm always thinking about like people's psyche when I'm when I'm kind of right. listening to history and kind of understanding well, what where are they coming from with this? Or what would I kind of surmise if this was in real time and I was talking to this person just as I watched the story play out? Um, in the film, you also cover how, uh, like, I guess, what, upper class or upper middle mm -hmm. class Haitians are kind of real tied in with the yeah. U.S. occupation. They, they, they're into it. They're taking photos with the Marines. Yeah. They're, you know, right. kind of uh, appreciating a certain proximity to power. Yeah. Um, and although the Americans are with it in Haiti... Apparently, back in the United States, they're kind of mocking these folks. They're Absolutely. saying they're, you know, they're no better than anybody else. And, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, they're just. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a in the personal collections of Woodrow Wilson. That's the president who, who and ordered the invasion. He's writing, I think, to one of his um, associates in Latin America. And he's telling him, listen, I don't think this occupation in Haiti is going to be a problem because them being Negroes. And not, they're not considered part of the fraternity, right? Mm. So yeah, that's how they were talking about the Haitians in Haiti. I yeah. mean, that, yeah, in America, but you know, even in Haiti too, right? And I'll tell you a story. Again, I don't know if I believe it, but Smedley Butler, who's one of the most seminal figures in the history of the occupation, writes the story when how he used to be a. At one point, he was like a personal bodyguard for Sudodolce Gunav, who was the Haitian president selected by the occupation. Now, Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes to Haiti in 1917. At the time, he was the assistant secretary of the Navy, and he's asking for a tour of the country. And the story goes, according to Butler, right, the, a car comes to pick up Franklin and Dolce Gunav, and Dolce Gunav, thinking that he's the president of the country and Mr. Roosevelt is only an assistant secretary, so he gets to go in the car before Mr. Franklin, Mr. Roosevelt. And this is the president of Haiti, mind you. According to Butler, he grabbed him by the collar, right, and yanked him out of the way so Mr. Roosevelt can get into the car before him, mm. right? And he also says that while they were touring in the country, Butler will sleep on a bed while the president of Haiti will sleep on a cot on the floor. 
you know. <laughs> that reminds me of the um, the Jay Z line, and I'm sorry, the, the song escape the title of the song escapes me but the one line where he signed when he says time to remind me i'm black again huh mm. you know what i mean so that's kind of yeah correct you know. and i'm glad you brought that up because when we think about the division in haitian society since the revolution there's been a particular class of haitians who do not align themselves with with the masses with the popular masses of the country they don't I'm not gonna say they didn't consider themselves Haitians, but they certainly did not consider themselves to be black. They, they don't consider themselves to be the same as anybody who's not of the same class. Right. Right. And they certainly didn't want to have anything to do with Africa. And they certainly considered themselves at least on par with the American officials. The psychological shock for the Haitian elite was that the people that they were entering to were people like Smedley Butler, who's a high school dropout right the majority of these marines were just high school graduates right and now they're giving orders to men who have masters men who are intellectuals right they couldn't they kind of taken over the country is the point you know yeah you yeah. know and and that's the moment you know Franz final talks about a black person realizes they're black in that moment right, right? So. which i mean you know and in the in the history that you've already detailed having been independent you know, so soon, uh, you can fathom yourself in charge. Yeah. <laughs> you can fathom, you know, people who look like you having power. Yeah. Uh, but in yeah. the United States, it's still it's a yeah. far reach away. Yeah. So when you come with kind of that perspective, the the kind of historical American pr perspective or principle of kind of like the old boys club, yeah. and you're trying to institute it uh, somewhere else, it it it, it is foreign. Yeah. <laughs> it's foreign to Haitians. They exactly. don't understand like. Yeah. How could they not respect me in my in my title and my you know in my achievements right. easily? Yeah. It's and to go back to what Simon asked earlier, right? What did the occupation look like? Again, it was Jim Crow. They instituted a level of Jim Crow in Paul Prince. They couldn't go into certain like the Haitian elite couldn't go to certain churches, couldn't go to certain clubs, couldn't go to certain restaurants, right? And you know, it's like this is my country, man. I can't go here. I can't go there. You know. Right. Yeah. Right. But of note, um, again, thinking about like the psyche, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of imagine this must be a little bit of how the how how the occupying Americans think right. is a little bit of the savior complex. Right. The Haitians that they were cool with are the ones who, at least in the American mind, right. need them the most. Right. The people who, you know, who kind of, I guess, what fit the description that they're selling this occupation as justified yeah. to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. They're cool with them, but anybody yeah. who can do for themselves or who doesn't who doesn't need uh, yeah. are optional and disposable. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things the American occupation does, it fills the void that the Haitian elite left, right? So they create the Haitian Gendarme elite. And you know, again, at the time, you know, being a policeman is considered low class. So the Haitian elite is not going to join the Gendarme elite. So the people who were foot soldiers, again, were the people from the popular classes. People who didn't know how to read, who didn't know how to write, who never had a you know regular paycheck. The occupation gives them all of that. Right? We're going to teach you how to read. We're going to teach you how to write. We're going to give you a paycheck. You're going to have access to health care. So they're then able to use that right, to get the loyalty of these men, and then they use these men to harass you know, the Haitian elite. Right? And uh, if you're just joining us, uh, this is Trauma Code. We have on Alain Martin talking about his uh, recent film, The Forgotten Occupation, about the uh, American occupation of Haiti starting in 1915. Um, we were just kind of going through what I think about sort of the crimes of the occupation. And, and I think one of the, the points that we're kind of getting at is that initially there was a, a part of a Haitian elite that uh, that – either invited or tolerated or was complacent about yes. uh, the American presence until that, you know, especially with change of leadership from people who were trying to get their way in to people mm. who walked right in. Yeah. Um, the brutality of the occupation became very clear. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a, a couple of kind of anecdotes that, that you describe that I think are really important. And one is, is the outright looting of the Haitian um, National Treasury by yeah, the Marines. The Haitian National and, Bank, yeah. You know, and you think about, we were talking about how um, the American Marines were living large in Haiti, right? That was um, financed by the looting of the National Treasury, basically. Basically, yeah. And, you know, um, 
the way I see it, at least for many of these Americans, Haiti was an ATM, right? It's this place you went to make money, right? In the film, I have this, you know, historian from Port Prince, George Lucien A.D., who's talking about how if a road was budgeted to be a million dollars, it'll end up costing four million. Reason being is that they want to invite some of their friends from the states to come in and come come make some money, right? I mean, one of the fascinating things didn't make it into the film, so I'll say it here. Going back to this thing that Haiti was the only country that never defaulted on his foreign debt. So once the Americans take over Haiti, the thing that they're gonna do, because they want control of the Banque Nationale, one hundred percent, they purposely make Haiti default on that foreign debt. Like they purposely don't pay the debt. So now the bonds of the National Bank devalued, right? Like they collapsed overnight, right? Now the Americans get ready to buy all those bonds from those foreign, excuse me, um, the people who own those debts. But before they do that, they call all their friends in Wall Street, say, hey, listen, man, tomorrow we're getting ready to buy, you know, this debt, da 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 make sure you have your money set aside, right? So all their friends pick up all those debts, all those bonds, and the next thing you know, the bond, it goes up again, right? So that's how they gain control of the bank. And they made, you know, a lot of their own personal friends extremely wealthy. And, you know, a lot of what we're describing obviously happened over a century ago, but it reminds yeah. me a little bit about the U.S. occupation of places like Afghanistan where mm -hmm. pallets of cash were flown over in a uh, C-130 and then no one's really sure what happened to them. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, man. And even look at the Red Cross not too long ago, right? How much money did they raise in Haiti? Like six billion or one billion? Forgive me if I don't have the. I know it wasn't the billions, and all they have to show for it was like six houses, like they built, right? So Haiti continues to be a cash cow, right? And you know, the earthquake was a cash cow for so many, supposedly, you know, nonprofit organizations. And the kind of one of the major crimes that I want to make sure we don't forget mm -hmm. is kind of really the rampant. Um, Violence and forced labor, um, particularly right. in the countryside, right? You, the you Corvée. Right. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that to yeah. put it into context. So the Corvée was an old Haitian law. It's not a law that was, you know, just a law in Haiti, right? It was in Egypt. You know, the British had it, the French had it, so Haiti had it, but it was never enforced. So when the rebellions in the countryside started becoming the reasons, you know, because Haiti didn't have any roads, right? And depending on what side of the equation you fall on, that's either a good thing or a bad thing, right? For the Americans, it was a bad thing because they couldn't drive fast enough to get to these rebellions to go quell them. So they needed to build roads to have better control of the country and to facilitate their movement. So Smedley Butler finds this old law in the Corvée that said, if you cannot pay a tax, then you have to work on the roads, on building roads for three days. But most of these Haitians couldn't pay a tax anyway, and he knew that. So overnight, it became this sort of manhunt, right? There was a priest in Haiti, a Catholic priest by the name of Father Pierre, uh, Father Bonneau, and he describes the corvée as a manhunt. They were going into funerals, right? They were going into churches. They were going into farms. They were going into people's houses in the middle of the night while they were sleeping and kidnapping them, men and women of working age, to take them away to work on the corvée. And, you know, it was forced labor, right? They worked 16, 17-hour days. They were hardly fed, right? They had to sleep on the floor. If you attempted to escape, you know, you were shot. Uh, one person who escaped was caught. They shot him, and they made sure to leave his body in plain sight, right? Being devoured by maggots. So it could serve as an example oh, so to the other workers. So you know what it is, yeah. Yeah, just, you know. Yeah, uh, you know, tread lightly, I guess. Is tread the, lightly, is, there you go. Point. Um, and, and a lot of what you're describing is, um, I mean, when you even consider the, the, the Haitian Revolution, it, it's always been about making the most possible money from right. this place. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm... Extremely proud that Haitian is that Haiti is the first Black Republic that we fought for our independence, the first successful uh, revolt of enslaved people. 
but also we can't neglect that the population had grown huge. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Because there was money to be made yeah. off of you know the sugar plant, the cane plantations, right? So the more we could produce, the better it was for the colonizer. Yeah. And and the more incentive they have to kind of keep this thing going. Absolutely. But in 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 I guess with that in mind, they let the population grow large enough to defeat stage them. Stage a revolt. Yeah. To stage a revolt, mm-hmm. a successful revolt at that, yeah. and defeat them. So it's always been about, you know, how much money, how much resources could be kind of squeezed out of Absolutely. this place. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so whenever we consider, okay, you know, the, the, the possibility of foreign intervention, any foreign intervention, it, it's hard not to be mindful of what their objectives are what do they stand to gain from from being present you know yeah. in our country what do yeah. what what do the occupiers or the you know the purveyors of that of that assistance right. stand to gain and if we're not thinking about it i think we're being a little bit blind to to history absolutely you know? absolutely yeah um it's getting a little thick a little heavy uh, <laughs> i, I want to <laughs> i want to i want to drop a little a little tune um I don't know. Should we do Mpadwe by Bob Bovano? Yeah, man. Should I think it's a that? powerful song. I love that song. So we'll let you intro it while Reggie kind of cues it up. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time looking for music that did not make it into the documentary. Um, so this song here by Bob Bovano, who's a folk singer, is called Mpadwe. And I think it's so relevant to the film. And to what we're talking about now, right? About... <laughs> People inviting themselves into the country, putting us in a state of debt, and then telling us that we owe them. Right. right. So that's what the song is about. Right. So Mpadwe basically means I don't, I owe. don't owe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you got that, Reggie? Okay. Yo, Dim Dwemwen Padwe, Yo, Dim Dwemwen Padwe, Se Gouvernement Yo Gidwe. Yo, Dim Dwemwen Padwe, Yo, Dim Dwemwen Padwe, Se Chef Deta Yo Gidwe. Moi te chita chita, moi pas de voyer où, Welcome back to the Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald live and in studio uh, with our guest Alain Martin talking about his uh, recent movie, The Forgotten Occupation. Jim Crow Goes to Haiti. Again, uh, debuted at the Art of Brooklyn Film Festival winning two awards for the audience choice and also the outstanding feature documentary. Um, excellent film. So we've been talking about it, or we've been kind of talking around it, and uh, I'm sure before we head off, Alan's going to let us know a little bit more about how, for you all to see it, but l- let's talk a little bit more about the hmm, the the more personal connection uh, that Alan kind of invested into the film, which is writing about his experience researching Haitian history and and addressing his grandfather posthumously um, in a letter that he kind of reads as narration to the film. Alain, what do you want to say about that? Yeah, so, you know, (laughs) 
I was looking for a way to sort of um, personalize the film to make it a bit more personal. I wanted the film to be honest. You know, um, whether we want to admit it or not, art or whatever we do in life is a reflection of who we are. And I didn't want to hide that. I wanted to put it out in the open. So, you know, and the thing is, my grandfather knew I loved cinema, and I kept thinking, man, if this guy was alive and he knew that my first film was a film criticizing the country that he loved so much, you know, what, what would he say, right? So then I decided, you know what? I'm going to write him a letter. So the see-through of the film is just me talking to my grandfather, right? So it's a bit, I guess, biographical, you know, cinema verite, historical. It's like it's a blending of genres, you know. And again, I just thought that, you know, it, it, it'll be a way to let the audience in into at least, a, you know, a particular perception of a particular set of Haitians when it comes to the United States and Haiti, right? And my grandfather is, uh, if, I could, if I may use that term, a psychological descendant, right, of the class of Haitians, of that perception that we can't do nothing for ourselves. We need the help and the assistance of the United States. I so, like it. I yeah. like it. Psychological descent. Well, it's yeah. true because we think about the effects of having been colonized or of colonization and how that contributes to intergenerational trauma. It's like, what's the story that he... Well, he was... In 1915, your, your grandfather was alive. Like, he saw this. No, so he grew up... He, he was born in 1921. Okay. He, the occupation ended in 1934. So he came off age during the occupation. The first 13 years of his life were mm -hmm. spent under the occupation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's just that the more heinous natures of the occupation were from like 1915 to 1922. So he didn't get to live through that, but he lived through the occupation, right? Well, so a few things. I don't know if it's fair. I don't know your grandfather, right? right, right. Um, so I can't say that he necessarily benefited from the occupation, he may not have. Right. But I think even if you don't directly benefit it, if you um, just, colonization works when certain people who are being colonized want to imagine themselves as close to the power. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it in some ways serves people. They will kind of perceive themselves as, oh, being either more civilized, more educated. Oh, I'm, I'm closer to the colonizer than I am right. to being colonized. Yeah. But in fact, that's a part of the psychology. Like, that's how you know it's working because people who are being colonized kind of want to assume that right. proximity to the power. Right. You know? And I'm glad you brought that up. I don't know if my grandfather benefited. I'd like to think that he did only because what occupations do, what colonization do, that it offers you the very things they deprive you of. So from 1922 up until 19, until the end of the, 1929, during the Great Depression, there was free schooling in Haiti, right? You couldn't go to school for free. Um, people got scholarships from the State Department. And that's partly because, you know, um, Haiti saw like a, a profit in its sugar industry that was being managed by the Americans, you know? So... You know, they did some things, but again, I want to be sure that I, I emphasize they were sending these Haitians to school to learn how to be carpenters, right? To learn, you know, agriculture. They didn't want nothing to do with the art, how to be doctors and stuff like that. So the Haitian elite, again, felt that, you know, you are coming to the country, you know, to teach us how to shine boots. So they didn't take any part of these schools. So what happens is that in the Great Depression, you know, when the United States is running out of money, they cut back all those programs in Haiti. So that generation, that generation of Haitians, like my grandfather, who came of age on occupation, going to school for free, going to the doctors for free, right? All that stuff gets pulled back because of the Great Depression. Then you have this um, this mass revolt on the side of the population, from, like from the city folks, you know. Uh, and you know, obviously, there's uh, a certain complexity. <clears throat> and you said, tell us in your film that your grandfather um, moved to the United States, worked in the United States. Um, 
made his little piece of the American dream, it sounds like. Right, enough yeah. money to go home and, uh, into Haiti and build something that he could be proud of. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the same time, I imagine that, that he was exposed to um, the writings of American founders um, like, you know, Thomas Jefferson, who have really seductive political beliefs. But at the same time, now we realize they were also brutal slave masters. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's part of the... the um, the kind of the paradox of that American history right. um, that, you know, it depends how you read it, which chapter you read, maybe it depends right, on, on which, right. which conclusion you yeah, come to. Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah, you know, so that's one of the legacies of the U.S. occupation, right, which I talk about in the film. It's the legacy of displacement. Before the American occupation, Haitians were not living Haiti, right? People were coming into Haiti, right? So, when American bankers started seizing the lands of the people to build factories and demanding that the people work on those same factories for pennies, they started abandoning the country en masse. They went to Cuba, yeah. went to Dominican Republic, you know, they come into the U.S. And that migration continued to this day, and my grandfather is a victim of that. I mean, he didn't see it, he, doesn't, he didn't contextualize it, but he abandons Haiti in the 19... 60s to move his family here. He's already married. He has three kids who are teenagers, and he decides to start his life over. Again, right? What the colonizer does, it provides you of the things it deprives you of. So you're thankful to him, or to, you know. So now my grandfather retires in Haiti with pension, social security. Now, if you think about it, his childhood, he comes of age during the occupation. To him, that's paradise. The his retirement years is also paradise because he's getting social security and pension from the United States. You see what I'm saying? Now, he's unable to contextualize that, that the reason Haiti could not give them those things is partly that the United States took these things away. A lot uh, of the resources were stolen, absolutely. Yeah. Like when we talked about um, you know, kind of them taking over the Haitian National Bank and yeah. resources that would have been kind of accumulated and accumulating yeah. kind of... Yeah. Infiltrated and and all the all the the finances for kind of social programs like that. Right. And you know we are bumping up against uh, towards the end of the hour. Um, and I think one of the things that made your film so compelling is this historical moment that we're in right now, where you hear people talking about yeah. uh, proposing an, another occupation or a foreign force coming to Haiti from whether it be the U.S. or I've heard Canada or some agency like the U.N. who had. Yeah. Uh, uh, its own problematic history in the, in the country. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the film, you start asking everybody you can get on film, like, yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think? Should the Americans come back? Right. Um, so, you know, what, what, what do we make of this film in this, in this historical moment that might have been different than when you started? You know, I think this film is, is making its way in a very timely manner, right? Because when I started working on the film, Haiti was not in the dire situation that it is now. Right um, now, because of the kidnappings, of the insecurities, the political uncertainties, we don't really have any elected officials in the country. People want an American occupation. A lot of them are openly asking for it. Right? And our film is a reminder: is like, be careful what you wish for, man, because we've had this occupation already, and it's partly left you with the country that you have now. And and if if I can say I, I I almost forgot I didn't write it down in in my agenda but there's a moment in your film where we see uh, what looks like a young man or a teenager uh, firing off uh, uh, an automatic weapon yeah and he doesn't even have proper footwear he has some like yeah. cheap knockoff sandals Good and I'm catch. like where, where does this where does this child basically come up with an automatic weapon and he can't even put shoes on his feet right and I and I'm wondering. You know, are these coming from China and Russia, or are they coming from Florida? And right. since watching the movie, we've you know we we came across uh, a CBS news special. What was that called again? I forgot, but there's, that was with um, my good friend um, Magali. Magali. Yeah, UN researchers. Yeah. Re researchers have shown at least eighty percent of the guns there are American. They're coming yeah, from Florida. Yeah. So the, this dire security situation is an American export. Is American, yeah, yeah. You know, they they've exported their mass shooting problems. To Haiti by Absolutely. way of their guns, you know? Yeah. They won't give you the bare necessities, but they'll give you weapons of mass destruction to kill yourself and kill everyone else. 
Right. So the name of that. So again, Haiti been you know heavy on our minds uh, recently. So on July sixth, there was this CBS report. Uh, called Fighting for Haiti, which is like yeah. a 30 minute special that they just covered a lot of the unrest and, and why it's happening and how it's happening. And, and in that documentary, in that special, they kind of show it like what's like a UN, like a, they show like a UN report of where most of these firearms are coming from. That, mm. And as it turns out, it's from the United States. Of course, yeah. 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 So, yeah, as you said, our mass shooting problem is being exported. Yeah. Well, anything else, you know, we're going to have to wrap it up. Anything else that you want to say? Uh, first of all, definitely let people know where where can we uh, see your film and find out more. Yeah, so um, we're working on um, doing a theatrical, a short window theatrical run, at least in New York, for November. Um, you can go to our page on Instagram, Pometi Films, that's P-A-M-E-T-I Films. Or you can follow us on our page, um, the Forgotten Occupation on Facebook, or you can check us out, The Forgotten Occupation on our website. And is there an online screening coming up? Oh, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So the good people at the Haitian Studies Association is hosting an online screening on July 29th. That's Saturday at 2 p.m. If you're interested, again, you can send me a, a text to the website or to Instagram, and I'll send you the, um, the link to register. Excellent. Uh, and so that we said Pametti Films, P-A-M-E-T-I. Yes, sir. Um, so, you know, we had two other songs planned for today's episode, and I think we should do at least one. I, I kind of want to as be a good host and say, Alan, what's your choice? So uh, we have Chijoslin, Topicana, very much a, a period piece. That sound is... Um, very unique to kind of this similar time period yeah, in Haiti. Yeah, maybe a little yeah, later. Maybe yeah. a little later. But still, it's our grandparents' music. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, alternatively, something a little bit more modern, Aiti uh, Punu. Yeah, you know what? Let's go with the, grandfather, with the grandparents' music. So you had to be in the beginning. So Chijoslin, yes, this is a song. Is It, it is Topicana. I mean, I know so many people have yeah. redone this song. But also, I'm happy you chose this one, uh, and we'll definitely make time to play Aiti Punu uh, in a different episode. But this particular song, um, again, showcases a third sound of Haitian music, a third genre, we could say, mm. of Haitian music. And um, maybe mildly controversial in its lyrics insofar as Chijoslin is a woman uh. um, who is charged with cleaning a house. Now, look. We try to be progressive, but really the, the, the symbolism of the music is, uh, of the song, I should say, of the lyrics, is that you have to be mindful of cleaning up your own house before you go to your neighbors to try, mm. kind of try to help clean up theirs, right? Profound. So this is the metaphor for today's show. So, Tijoslin, Kopikana, Reggie, whenever you got it. Thanks for listening to The Trauma Code, everybody. Thank you again to our guest, Ale Mote, filmmaker. Cadet Justine, qui comprend les capables de tromper.